This is Mystical Text with Adel Kazilski. Shavua Tov and welcome everybody to another week on Chai FM where we learn Torah over the air. Um, a fantastic way to communicate Torah. You know, I was just discussing with somebody on the weekend. Um, that maybe even just a hundred years ago, not too long ago, but certainly a hundred years and moving backwards, it was very, very hard to acquire knowledge, to get the information that you need. Um, and today, um, ignorance ain't bliss. You actually cannot even use it as an excuse because there are so many ways to disseminate, uh, disseminate um, information, radio being one of the many, many ways that we actually get to people. It's just an incredible wonder and certainly a sign of Mashiach, of the Messianic uh, process dawning on us that we are able to communicate ideas and thoughts and words of Torah through so many mediums, be it through the internet, be it through the radio, um, be it through having classes. There are so many classes, again, just I know in the city of Johannesburg, and I'm sure everywhere in the world, you can still sit down and learn in the old-fashioned way, one-on-one with the human contact, which in fact is fantastic. Or if you do not have the time, all you have to do is plug in some um headphones or earphones and you're able to access so much wisdom on a daily basis. I know for myself, um, time is pretty short. There's a lot to do in a day. And so I try to take all the dead time, um, that I have. And I always have something streaming, something that I can listen to and something that I can learn. And I hope you do too. So here we are sitting together now for the next 45 minutes and uh, we're studying mystical texts. The text ain't so mystical. It is the five books of Moses. It's the book of Genesis and the Parsha of Noah. We are studying what happened to Noah. And of course, as we know, Torah is timeless and that all the lessons, all the things that we learn in the Torah is not only a biblical account. It's not historical um, in and of itself. It is there as a lesson in life. It's called Torah Chaim, the the, the, the Torah of life, because it gives us so many lessons that we can learn on a daily basis. As always, I love to have interaction. If you have any questions, you have any comments, anything that's bothering you, if you agree with me, even if you disagree with me, would love to hear from you. My WhatsApp number, not my Chai WhatsApp number is 061-895-1019. The SMS number is Three four five one nine, and today we are going to actually have a very interesting discussion. I'm going to go through about fourteen verses of chapter eight of Genesis, so uh, verses one to fourteen of chapter eight, which now will be describing what um, actually happened to Noah um, when the waters started to 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 subside and just go through some of the wording and understanding the the practicalities and the the midrash the story behind all of it but it comes to teach us another lesson and another great great um discussion to be had and that is how does Torah see us earning a livelihood? How do we earn our parnasa? Like where on the spectrum um, do we find ourselves? What is our attitude? What is our narrative um, in understanding how we 
earn a living. Now, I know that earning a living is something that is pretty difficult for a lot of people out there. Um, there's a lot of struggle out there. And, uh, you know, maybe um, through discussion, through debate, through understanding what the Torah um, expects and, and wants of us, we can come to an understanding of the interplay of what it means to go out and earn money and how does money play in our lives. So I want you all out there to think about that as we get along. And um, right after the break, once we start getting through the verses, we are going to be hitting this, inv- this very important topic. So again, WhatsApp is 61 Eight nine five one zero one nine. The SMS number three four five one nine. Right, we left off last week at the end of chapter seven. We were um, reading about the torrent, the wellsprings of the above and below, opening up in an unremitting fashion, and how, in fact. Um, it flooded the world, and it not only flooded the world, it obliterated every organism that was on the face of the ground. It, it obliterated humanity, animals, creeping things, birds of the heaven, um, and eventually the water became so much that it lifted up the ark, and the ark was afloat for some close on 150 days until... Um, Things settled, the water stopped subsiding, and the ark landed on a mountain called Mount Ararat. Now, we're going to pick up on uh, verse 1 of chapter 8 that reads as follows, Vayiskor Elohim et Noach, God remembered Noach, ve'et kol ha'chaya, ve'et kol ha'behema asher ito bateva. He also remembered all the wild beasts and the domestic animals that were with him in the ark, the Ya'aver Elohim Ruach Al Haaretz, God made a wind blow um, on the earth, the Yashohu Hamayim, and the water subsided. Vayisachru Mayanot Tohom, the Arubot Hashamayim, Vayikale Hageshem Minashamayim, and the well springs of the deep, those are the waters that came up from below. And the floodgates of heaven were sealed and the downpour from heaven discontinued. So just in as much God opened up, so to speak, the taps um, of water, the floodgates from above and below, there came a point in time where God sealed them, both the waters from below, the waters from above, with a wind that blew on the earth. The water receded from the earth. Haloch vashov. It went going backwards and forth. Ve'yachseru hamayim makze hamishim umeas yom. And the water began to diminish at the end of a hundred and fifty days. Vatanach hateva b'chodesh hashvi'i b'shiva asayom l'chodesh al harei ararat. What happened in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark rested on the mountains of Ararat, which today, by the way, I think, I believe is in the region of where Turkey is. And the water continued to diminish until the tenth month, and in the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the mountain mountain tops became visible 
What does it mean that God remembered Noach? He remembered Noach and the merit of him working so hard and caring for the animals. Obviously, um, the animals also had merit because they never interbred as the ones, the ones that were left behind that were killed by the, by the flood. And as long as they remain sealed in the ark, even the male and female animals remain separated. They, they saw the world suffering. We spoke about the fact that Adam and his son separated from their wives. Um, there was no intimacy in the ark. So too were the animals. Um, they remained separate and, um, that left them meritorious to, to, to remain, um, sealed up in this container, this huge container, okay, huge ark, um, and to be remembered by God that in fact he, he needed to stop the waters so to, to birth a, a, a new world. Now, what's, there's, there's an interesting interplay over here which, um, bears a discussion because um, it has repercussions on the way that we think. If you look at verse one in, in the couple of verses that, that I read, it says, Vayiskor Elohim at Noach, and God remembered Noach. Now, right in the beginning of us starting to learn, Chumash starting to learn the five books of Moses, we learned that there are two names of God. One is Elohim, which is God in his attribute of justice, um, and strictness. And then we have the Yudke Vavke, uh, the, the, the name that we normally see, see God in, which we do not pronounce, we just say Hashem, um, that is the attribute of mercy. And the question I'm going to leave you with just to ponder as we go for a break is why would it say Vayiskor Elohim et Noach, that God, the God of judgment, remembered Noach? Surely now it should be the God of mercy that remembers Noach and calls for this wind to blow and calls for the waters to recede, not the God of judgment. Let me know if you can kind of figure out an answer. Uh, 061-895-1019 is the WhatsApp and SMS is 34519. This is Mystical Text with Adel Kazilski. Welcome back. And uh, just before the little uh, ad break, we were talking about the fact that now when God remembers Noah, he remembers him with the word Elohim. That's how we describe God. Elohim being um, the name of God that always denotes the attribute of justice, while the Yudke Vavke, which we pronounce um, generally when we uh, speak about God, um, is the attribute of mercy. Why would God be in a state, in an attribute of justice, of strictness, of punishment, um, when he remembers Noah, when in fact he was actually doing a very kind thing? Well, I think that there's two answers that I'd like to share with you. The first is, is that we, if we actually look just before the story of Noah unfolds, and I'm talking about now going back probably to chapter six, I think it's verse number seven. God says there, I will obliterate humanity with which I, which I have created. And where you see there that it says, God says, I will obliterate humanity. There is the Yudke Vavke, the name of God uh, represented in a state of mercy. Well, the rabbis actually pick up on that and say these two things are upside down. When he's going to obliterate humanity, we should say, Vayomer Elohim. 
and God in his attribute of justice will up, uh, obliterate humanity. When he is remembering Noah, when he is remembering to save all those that are floating in this ark, it should be with the attribute of mercy. Um, but it is reversed. What does this come to teach us? Because as we always know, nothing is done by mistake in the Torah. Nothing is written incorrectly. If anything like this is brought to our attention, it's there for a reason. So the first um, explanation that that, that 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 I read says like the the following: that the wicked, when God was looking down on this on this world. And he saw the wicked being so despicable. It said they were so of, of such a low level, so sinful, so immoral, that they were able to change the attribute of mercy and cause it to judge mercilessly. Okay, they took Vayomer Hashem, the Yudke Vavke, and they changed it into an Elohim. Where God says I'll obliterate it because God was merciful at the time. God was giving them long lives. God was patiently waiting for them to repent, but they were so despicable in their behavior that they were able to change the attribute of, of uh, mercy into the attribute of, of justice, of, of severity. Similarly, the opposite. Noah was so righteous that he had the power to cause the attribute of justice to act with mercy. So in the verse, and God remembered Noah, here we are teaching that God looked down, he found favor, and he saw how righteous Noah was, and so the attribute of justice was changed into the attribute of mercy. So this, by the way, this does not imply and one shouldn't imagine that this implies any change in God himself. What this opinion is saying is that the recipient is recompensed by God according to his deeds. All right. Um, we could take the example of rain. We know that the same rain that can, say, water the crops of the righteous can wash away the fields of the wicked. Water is a power of thing, and depending on the recipient, depending on, on, on the status of the recipient, whether they are righteous or wicked, so too the water will act. And so this interchange between God in his attribute of justice and God in his attribute of mercy comes to teach us that we actually um, play a very, very important part in what God brings down to this world. That's the first thing. The second thing which um, in my mind teaches us is that many, many times when people look at circumstances in their lives, they qualify things as bad and good. Okay, And um, many, many times we will look at something, it will, it will play itself out as a negative thing. Um, incident as something that is hurtful, as something where somebody goes through a loss um, or goes through pain or goes through an uncomfortable situation, and we label it as bad. Um, and similarly, we've got a whole host of things um, in our narrative, in our lives, which we, we say these things are good. Um, and that is the way that we view our lives. We actually put on glasses. One part of our brain has cat categorized that which we deem to be bad and the other that which is good. 
But on a, on a, a, a existential level, on a very, very deep level, when one actually is honest and one looks through the experiences in life, many times if one is honest with oneself, one will see that that normal, normally bad thing that happened to us, in fact, was unbelievably good. Okay, how many times with 2020 hindsight we look bad and saying, you know, I was mad, I was angry, um, this happened to me and that happened to me, but you know what? It was the very best thing that happened to me because otherwise I wouldn't be where I am today. So what we categorize as bad is not necessarily bad. Um, there could be good to it, meaning what we would see as the attribute of justice can and most probably is the attribute of mercy. The very best way to understand that is when one um, wants to discipline a child, okay, and one gives meets out a punishment to the child, or say, uh, you know, the child is walking and is about to cross the road and is not looking left and right, and the mother yanks the child and it actually hurts the child. The child starts crying, and the child sees that, you know, that it was painful and that the mother was really not nice, but the mother knew that if I didn't yank you out and I didn't hurt you the way I did, you could God have, God forbid, have been um, driven over by a car. The same thing applies conversely. And here I'm not talking from a godly perspective, but from a human perspective. Many times we look at things and, and we categorize them as good and not necessarily always is it a good thing. And this is leading up to a discussion that I want to, to touch base with, which we're going to get into shortly. And that is, for example, the concept of money. Speak to anybody out there and they'll say, listen, you know, money is, 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 is vitally important. It's everything in life. You can't live without it. Um, we sublimate and subjugate ourselves to the pursuit of money. Money is a good thing. But not necessarily. Sometimes what we think is the attribute of mercy is in fact the attribute of, 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 of justice. It sometimes can bring some very negative things into our lives. So this interchange again, I guess this idea that we're speaking about interchanges with the first set of ideas where if somebody is righteous, he can take justice and change it into mercy and somebody who's not righteous can take mercy and change it into justice. I think Overall, what this, what these verses are teaching us is that we need to be the correct recipients of God's blessing and then allow mercy to be mercy and justice to be justice, not to have it mixed up. Because sometimes, you know, someone says, well, you know, if you let me become rich, don't worry, I'll, I'll do absolutely everything. Sometimes being rich is a curse, not a blessing. Um, we will take that up further, but I wanted to bring it out from these Verses that uh, we've just gone through now Let's just see what happens once the waters recede We're going to look at verse 6, chapter 8 It says as follows Another 40 days passed It was the end of 40 days That was after the ark rested on Mount Ararat Noach opened the window of the ark that he had made, Vayishalach et ha'orev, Vayetze yatso vashuv ad yoveshet hamaim me'al ha'aretz. And he sent out a raven, it departed, it went back and forth until the water on the land dried up. 
So the Torah informs us, by the way, that Noah knew the language of the animals and of the birds, and therefore he was able to tell the raven what to do, and he sent him on a mission. When did he send him on the mission? It came out to the date of the 10th of Elul, um, which was 40 days after the mountaintops became visible. And uh, the reason why he sent out the, ra- the raven was twofold. One, it said that the raven happens to be a very intelligent bird. Um, so he sent him out to see what was happening in the world. The other um, interesting thing was that uh, the raven was one of the animals that did not listen to God and landed up being intimate with its partner. Okay. And so, um, kind of as a midder connected midder, uh, a one, one measure for another, Noah said, you know what? You, you, you didn't listen to what we were saying. Well, I'm going to send you on the dangerous mission. Now you're going to put your life on the stake. Um, so that, that I'm, I'm, I'm not too, too, too worried if, if we lose you simply because you did not abide with the rules and regulations, um, on, on the ark. Um, the raven, the raven, by the way, refused to leave the vicinity of the ark. Um, and, uh, what happened was is that round the vicinity of the ark, the Midrash tells us that it saw a human's corpse and it began to devour it. So when it came back in, Noah said, you see, you don't know how to abide the laws I'm actually not going to let you in and God told Noah interestingly um, to accept the raven because he said later on in life later on not in life later later on in history um, it will bring benefit and in fact it did if you look in the book of Malachim of Kings when Eliyahu Hanavi Elijah had to flee to a cave after rebuking King Ahab who was a rebellious and um, Disastrous king. Um, it didn't rain for three years. The raven brought food for Eliyahu Navi from Yehoshaphat's table. Anyway, uh, he sent the raven. The raven went to scour the area, couldn't find anywhere to settle, and uh, he came back. Verse eight reads as follows: Vayishalach et hayona meito. Seven days later, then again, uh, Noah sends out a dove. Lirots. To see, hakalu hamaim me'al peneha adama, have the water subsided from the f- surface of the ground. Velo matza hayona manoach, the the dove did not find a place to rest. Lechaf ragla to rest its legs. Vatashav elav elateva, and so she returned back to the ark. Kimaim al penekola aretz, because there was still water all over. Uh, so it returned to him to the ark and Noah stretched out his hand, took it in and brought him back into the teva. So first out went the raven. The raven couldn't find anything. Raven came back in. Seven days later, send out the dove. The dove um, didn't really go on any mission, just went to see if there was a place for it to land outside to determine whether or not the water had subsided. It didn't, and it came back. So we're looking now at the third set of seven days. He waited another seven days. Once again, he set out the dove from the ark. 
the Yonah returned towards evening. Vehine and behold, Ale Zayit Taraf Befiha. Um, he had a torn off olive leaf in his beak. Vayeda Noach ki kalu hamaim me'al ha'aretz. He knew then that um, the waters had subsided, had receded from the earth. Now, if anybody didn't know, here is where we get the symbol of the dove being a symbol of peace. Many, many uh, times we see this insignia um, of the dove with an olive branch in its beak. Um, it is a symbol of peace. It is a symbol of renewal. It is a symbol of hope. It is a symbol that all's well. Um, and it comes directly out of the Chumash, directly out of the five books of Moses, right over here, where the dove comes back. And by giving Noah that torn piece of olive, um, an olive leaf, um, he, it, it, he, he was basically saying, there's life out there. Now, um, the rabbis ask, where did he get, where did the dove get the olive leaf? So many say it came from a tree in the Holy Land. Others say it came directly out of the Garden of Eden. Um, and that was how Noah knew that everything was fine. But if you recall earlier on, um, we said that that's, that, that, that really shouldn't be an indication that the waters had receded. Why? Because we learned that the flood actually didn't reach the Holy Land, even though we are saying that uh, the, the flood covered the entire earth. We learned last week that it said the land of Israel didn't get covered completely. So if the Holy Land or the Garden of Eden, both of them were not covered by the flood, how did Noah, then how could that have been proof that in fact um, the waters had subsided? So the truth is the rabbis teach like it wasn't that, that that was the lesson. What was actually happening here was that we should really be focusing on what type of leaf the uh, the bird had brought back, the dove had brought back. We know that no tree produces leaves that are more bitter uh, to the taste than the olive. And what what the dove was saying to Noah when he brought it back, he was saying it is better for me that my food be bitter like an olive leaf and come from God than have it as sweet as honey and coming from man. Okay, Noah understood by that that the waters had receded because if the dove was still dependent on him, it wouldn't have the audacity to imply such a message. A more subtle message, again, let me repeat it. The dove was saying it is better for me that my food be bitter like an olive leaf and come from God than have it as sweet as honey and come from man. I'm going to come back to that because here is the discussion um, another a, a, a place where we can bounce off the discussion about earning a parnasa. I just would like to finish another three verses, which wraps up the this story and follows the continuum of it. So he waited a fourth set of seven days. 
um, Shivat Yamim Acharim, another seven days, Vayishlach Etayona, this is the third time he sends out the dove, Velo Yasfa Shuv Elav Od, the dove never came back to him. Meaning now, he had obviously found a permanent resting place, Vayhiba Achat, Veshesh Meot Shana, Barishon Hak, um, Be'echad, Lachodesh, Charvu Hamai Me'al Ha'aret, Vayasanor, Et Hamichse, so it was in the 601st year of Noah's life, in the first month, on the first um, of the month that the waters of the land began to dry. Noah removed the ark's hatch and he saw that the surface of the ground was drying. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the land was completely dry. Just to understand very quickly the, chronolog- uh, the chronology again of the flood, it seems now if you follow up what was happening, there was 40 full days of rain, and then on the morning of the, of the last day, the rain stopped, Okay, and that was followed by 150 days where the waters increased in torrents. Then um, we have um, from that after the 150 days, there was a 60-day period where uh, the, the torrents, the, 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 that's when the water began to recede. The water had covered all the mountain tops, and then there was another 60-day period again which was when Noah started opening the ark's window and sent out the raven and then sent out the the dove three times, etc., etc. If you add all of that together, you will see that it came to exactly 12 solar months. 12 solar months um, of from the inception of when the rain began to when uh, Noah knew it was safe to come out. <laughs> This is Mystical Text with Adel Kazilski. Right, so we've come to the end of the flood. Uh, Twelve months of hell, twelve months of living in this ginormous cruise ship, which was not a cruise ship by any standard as we know it today. Um, just quickly, why were people, why were they punished for twelve months Um in terms of solar months rather than lunar months, because generally we know, we are told, that anybody who has to suffer purgatory, anybody who has to suffer what we know as Gehenim, will only suffer a maximum of 12 months, but they're lunar months. That's why when a person is mourning another, particularly a child, for a parent, we have the 12 months. We have the Shiva, and then we have the Shloshim, which is the 30 days, and then we have another another 11 months of mourning where we say Kaddish and try to do things to assist the soul if, God forbid, it lands up in, in Gehenim. Why 12 solar months? So we're told that all those that were killed by the flood had committed the sin of pride. Big why? Because they were so confident in their magical powers that they they felt that they could prevent the sun from rising, the rain from falling, and so God made sure then that uh, they were uh, that, that, that they were punished measure for measure. To, that there was absolutely no doubt that they had absolutely no power on it. Just another interesting thing is that a number of hot springs remained left over from the flood because remember at the beginning of the flood the Torah says all the great well springs burst forth 
And then later now we've just learned it says the wellsprings of the deep were sealed without saying the word all. And uh, our rabbis learned from that the fact that there were a number of these wellsprings remained open. One of one famous one is the hot springs in Tiberia in the city of T- T- Tiberias in the north of Israel. Um, and we know that these hot springs, they, they're really full of sulfur. They, and we know that they cure them. And this was left to demonstrate God's greatness because he can punish and he can heal with the same, the same agent. Having said that, I want to go back now to just have a short discussion and would love your input. Um, SMS 34519 or WhatsApp 0618951019 to discuss the idea of parnasa, of earning a living. We just read over here that, um, that the dove was saying to Noah, I'd rather have the bitter leaf and have it coming from God than have it as sweet as honey coming from you. Um, this is one aspect of earning a parnasa. The Torah speaks about it a lot, that one of the ways that we should earn a living, the way that we should bring money into our lives is to allow it that it comes as a blessing from God, not from other people. It is a very embarrassing position. It's a very embarrassing position to be uh, to be in a place where one has to receive charity or one has to receive money from others in order to remain sustained. So one aspect of earning the Parnosa is that we should always strive to have that Parnosa come directly from God, meaning that we create a keli, we create a vessel um, which God can bless and which we can earn money independently of people per se, not putting ourselves in a charitable situation or in a situation where we are dictated on how to live our lives because other people are giving us money. But there's more um, t- to this idea of Parnosa, and that is how much effort does one need or is required to put in in order to earn a Parnosa? Um, many, many Times we see the parable in the Torah that the torrents of water, the wellsprings below, the wellsprings above, the, the 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 torrent that is happening is actually a reflection of the world's our world, our chaotic world, and that one needs to learn how to navigate that world. We spoke about, I think it was two weeks ago, that we navigate this world by creating a table around us, creating a sanctuary, a place where. Um, we feel whole, we feel integrous, et cetera, et cetera. But the idea is taken further that the trials and tribulations of this world, particularly in um, the exercise of earning a living, is representative by the flood. And where does one draw the line as to what is enough, um, how much effort one should put in? Now, this is something that lands up becoming personal, something that one needs to discuss with a mentor, with a rabbi, with somebody that is objective to, to, to where they are. But Torah, Torah's perspective on Parnosa is this. What we are to earn um, yearly is decided on Rosh Hashanah. God, will op- God opens up the book and he writes down a number. He says, this year, X, Y, and Z, um, Baruch Cohen is going to earn X amount 
And that is the amount of inflow into his life that he would receive. If, um, if Baruch understands that, then he will go out and create a keli. He will create a vessel in which to receive that. But he will also understand that sometimes pushing yourself beyond the boundaries to a point of sacrifice, maybe sacrifice of yourself, sacrifice of your family, sacrifice of your marriage, sacrifice of, of, of other important elements in your life, those things are worthless in sacrificing for because it will not make you earn more. Okay? And vice versa, how many times you have seen where people have no education, have nothing, and we've got the saying, you know, everything they touch turns to gold. It's only because God has deemed it so, and vice versa. You can be the cleverest person, the person with the so many degrees, and you could sit, be, you, you could find yourself out there and um, struggling to make a living. Our living comes from God, and it is a process. It's something that we need to engage into the world. It is a, a, a process that was imposed upon us when Adam sinned. Um, at Eitz Hadad, you can go back um, and listen to the podcast when we were discussing the Garden of Eden. Um, that was one of the the prerequisites, and so to, so to speak, punishments of um, Adam. That by the sweat of your brow, you sh- you, you will earn your bread. Um, it is not necessarily a uh, curse. It is rather the way that we involve ourselves in this world. So Torah isn't saying to us, you know, just sit back and wait because the money will flow. No, one needs to engage the world and get involved in the world. But having said that, then the question is, how much is enough? Not, uh, you know, where do I, where, 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 where am I on the continuum where I'll go and say, it's too much now because I'm overextending and I'm eating away at other important things in our lives. And I think that that's, that's an, an important um, perspective to, to have in life, that when we are navigating the turbulent waters of, of this world, we still need to create a sacred space within us which doesn't affect the essence of who we are. And today we see so many people under so much stress because they are extending themselves, or I should even say overextending themselves in this realm of trying to make their physical existence on this planet uh, better that the, the more they try, the harder it becomes for them to actually sustain it. And it becomes like a vicious wheel of a hamster running on a wheel and going nowhere. <laughs> This is Mystical Text with Adel Kazilski. Indeed it is, and uh, we're actually coming up to the top of the hour and times of the essence. I heard a very interesting idea that says in the beginning, as as we get older and we go into our 20s and 30s, money um, is probably the most sacred commodity and that you know, we chase our life around money. And as we get older and we get into the 50s, 60s, 70s, we kind of um, relax that commodity called uh, money and we try to trade it for time. I, I found that to be it, a very, very interesting concept, a very, very true concept. Um, and what I want to leave you with today is to think about that uh, the, the, the the balances between money and time at the end of at the end 
of everything and when we look at it, the bottom line is probably time is a far greater um, more important commodity than money. Money can come and go. Time as our time of our life goes by, we can never capture it back. And if we to understand that God gives us our parnasa, God gives us our livelihood, God gives us our blessing, perhaps the question we should be asking ourselves on a daily basis is not where can I make more money? How can I make more money? How much more of me must I throw in order to make the money? But asking ourselves how much do we utilize our time and am I putting it in the right, using it for the right purposes with the right people and allowing myself to grow? I'd like to leave you with that idea uh, to ponder, and uh, please, God, we will be back. Well, I certainly will be back next week at this time to continue the saga of Noach, but really, in essence, to understand a little bit more of our own journey in life. Meantime, have a wonderful week.